You are listening to the teaching ministries of Southwest Church, located in the heart of Springboro, Ohio, at 150 Remick Boulevard, beside the Kaufman Family YMCA. Please visit our website at www.southwestchurch.org. Thank you for joining us for this week's message from student minister Andrew Beal. Good morning, all. I'm your third and final speaker this morning. So we just had Jamie with finances, and so I'm here to complete that trifecta of everyone's favorites, religion and politics, actually, so we're in for a great morning. Uh, let me pray for all of us, just so we can kind of switch gears, and then we'll, uh, we'll move on. So, so pray with me. Father, we're here in this room, in this building, because uh, we want to know you, we want to uh, more closely follow your son Jesus and uh, learn from his life, follow his ways instead of our own. So uh, just going forward with a sometimes controversial, sometimes uncomfortable topic, um, allow your truth and your words to speak through me and uh, let's all help us all uh, move toward that, reflecting your son Jesus more and more. It's in his name that we all pray together. Amen. So we are in this uh, series called The Jesus Myth, and we're really excited about it. Uh, This whole series was born out of the idea that there are some misconceptions out there, even, even false truths about who Jesus was and who Jesus is. So we wanted to spend the weeks following Easter, five of them to be exact, uh, seeing the reality of the risen Jesus, and we want to leave all those myths behind. So some months ago, we brainstormed as a staff some of the myths and even lies that people believe or have been told about the person of Jesus. And last week, we looked at the myth that Jesus is angry and he's walking around with a stern look on his face with his finger pointed at you in disappointment or even disgust. But Roger guided us toward the truth that that is not the real Jesus, as we saw that what got Jesus angry to begin with was injustice in the world and that he was actually hardest on those who were hard on others. Next week, we're looking at the myth that Jesus only cares about rules and how we're behaving, and that he's keeping a tally of all the good and especially the bad that we've done. It's a myth. And later on in the series, we get to cover the myths that Jesus is irrelevant or out of date, and then uh, I get to cap off the series, uh, dispelling the myth that Jesus is confusing. But today, we're dealing with the myth that Jesus is political, with the message titled, President Jesus. I don't necessarily want to give away where we're going to end up uh, by the end of the hour together, but uh, we need to know that this topic is not as simple as we would probably like it to be. Some would say that Jesus was extremely political, and others would say that Jesus wasn't political at all. And the truth is, both would be correct. See, in our American context, we're uh, trained, when the topic of politics comes up, we're trained to think of Republicans and Democrats and Independents and any number of other labels. I remember about 10 years ago, I was in college, we were assigned to do some reading and research uh, in the face of the 2008 presidential election, and one of the topics, you know, on this uh, Christian college campus was, you know, questions like, who would Jesus vote for? So, you know, you come across some articles asking the questions, you know, who would you vote for? What would Jesus do if he were president? Or what political party would Jesus belong to? And there were a lot of valid, interesting thoughts out there. Some were helpful. Many were helpful, actually, and some just were not at all. 
For example, uh, some of us may have heard or uh, had heard the thought before that when it comes to, say, Republicans who follow Jesus, they tend to more value things like truth and righteousness and upright moral behavior. Or maybe you've heard that when it comes to Democrats who follow Jesus, they tend to more value things like grace and justice and mercy. All really, really good things. A couple of weeks ago, I was driving back from Indianapolis, uh, spending uh, some uh, time with my family after Easter, and I was driving back, and I have a friend who pastors at a church outside Cincinnati, so I stopped in to have lunch with him in his office, and he was preparing a message for uh, that um, following weekend, and he asked me the question, he said, hey, what do you think if Jesus absolutely had to, if Jesus had to pick one of our political parties to align himself with, to belong to, what do you think he would be? Do you think he would be a Republican, or do you think he would be a Democrat? And we talked about that for a while, and we you know, came up with our answers. I'm not going to tell you what our answers are this morning. If you're super curious, email me, and I might give it away, but you have to email me first. But at the end of the day, we both agreed that asking the question, would Jesus be a Republican or a Democrat, even asking that question is almost just nonsensical. It would just be like me asking you, hey, what's your favorite color, spaghetti or paper? You just can't ask that question. There's no real answer to it. It's just this nonsense out there question that you really can't answer in any real concrete way. So for us this morning, we're going to put on our first century Jewish glasses so we can look back and see what the people in the early first century expected Jesus to be. So while we know that Jesus didn't overthrow any earthly empires or even rise to the top of one, the ones who were awaiting this Messiah expected him to do nothing less than bring down earthly governments and to set up a godly one. Now there's this word we're going to be talking about, Messiah, and it's a church word, and if it's new to you or you've heard it before and you've either forgotten what it means or you were never sure to begin with, uh, it literally means just the anointed of God. Messiah means anointed of God. And to be anointed of God would have been to have uh, sacred oil poured over one said. So not only is this you know, word Messiah we don't use, at least outside of this building, we also don't practice the anointing or pouring oil over people's heads. So some more explanation. Uh, in ancient Israel, all of the high priests, the people who would kind of intercede for God's people on behalf of God himself, uh, all these high priests, they were anointed. And many kings were also anointed. For instance, King Saul, he was the first king who was anointed. King David, King Solomon, these guys were all anointed. And if you were anointed, then it meant that you now had authority to lead God's people, to shepherd God's people, and to judge God's people and act as God's representative. We really don't have anything like this to compare it to today. It was a serious, holy, very, very big deal. And especially with King David, being anointed and being a king over Israel were nearly synonymous, and that expectation really didn't go away once the Messiah started, when that expectation started to grow and grow and grow, especially when Jesus came on the scene. So to catch us up, to be the Messiah was to be God's anointed, which means you were God's ruler and judge over his people. You were their earthly and spiritual king. Now, going a little forward, Jesus, we know he had the title Christ, which is simply the Greek word for the Messiah, which that may have busted some people's bubble. Christ is not Jesus' last name. I found that out way too late in life, like embarrassingly late in life. So I want us all to know it is not a last name. It is a title. So in the very simplest of terms, Jesus Christ means and translates to Jesus, God's chosen king. So whenever you hear Jesus Christ, you should think King Jesus. 
Anyway, so when Jesus begins his earthly ministry and people started thinking that maybe he was the Messiah, they started to get excited because the Messiah, the king, he was going to overthrow the Roman Empire. That was their expectation. Now, why would they ever expect this? We know Jesus didn't do this. We know this didn't happen. So why would they expect this to begin with? It was natural for the Jewish people in the first century Israel to expect this because there were scores of prophecies that spoke to what the Messiah would do. And there was always political connotations and words attached to this. Listen to this from the prophet Isaiah. Part of this text we often hear around Christmas time. This is Isaiah 9. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You, and he's talking about the Messiah now, you will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You'll break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. There'll be fuel for the fire. You can kind of hear that military political language going on. And this is the part we get at Christmas time. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Now, reading that out loud and hearing that out loud as often as they would have, it sounds like there's going to be a government overthrow, a very political Messiah. Hearing that, we'd expect nothing less ourselves. But turns out Jesus did not have that in mind at all. He had something bigger and even better in mind. We said earlier that Jesus was both very political yet not political at all, and that holds true. Uh, And many of us, we can get uncomfortable talking about politics, especially when it comes to how does that inform or come alongside our faith. It can get complicated and messy. That's how many of us feel. We know that in our country, we have a separation of church and state. If not in writing, then there's just like this cultural understanding. But in the first century Jewish context, there would have been no separation at all. It was all mixed in. There was no dividing up. There was no putting different aspects of our lives into different compartments or different categories. As Americans, we're very, very good at that. It's a normal way of life. To first century Jews, that would have been completely foreign. They would not be able to comprehend a lifestyle like that. Now, Jesus actually used quite a bit of political language and fulfilled political prophecy one after another as he made his way to the cross. Again, here's what the prophet Isaiah says about the Messiah, the coming king. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn the time of the Lord's favor has come, and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. Fast forward to when Jesus comes on the scene. He's beginning his ministry. This is Luke 4. He's just spent his 40 days fasting and being tempted out in the desert. And uh, he's beginning his ministry. He goes to the synagogue. He goes to church to preach. And this is how this goes down according to the Gospel of Luke. Verse 16. When Jesus came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went, as usual, to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He did not choose this text, by the way. It was given to him. 
He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And Jesus, he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them, The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. And if you keep reading, these people actually get very upset and try and throw Jesus off a cliff, but he gets away. You can read that at home later if you like. Some more prophecies. Go back to uh, the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel says this about the Messiah. says, I will search for my lost ones who strayed away. I'm going to search for them. And I will bring them safely home again. Now let's lay that aside of Luke 19.10, like perhaps the theme, the thesis statement of the entire Gospel of Luke. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who were lost. People hearing that was like, wow, that sounds a lot like Ezekiel. That would have put a, a flag up in their mind. How about another? The prophet Zechariah, 500 years before Jesus is born, says this, Rejoice, O people of Zion! Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem! Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Do you all know or remember what, uh, what happened the week before the Jesus crucified this? What uh, happens from Matthew 21? As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. This took place to fulfill a prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And the two disciples, they did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. These people were ready to crown him king in this moment. This was not the first time they tried, by the way. Just so you know, uh, throwing the garments on the road in front of him, cutting branches from trees, these were all very political, honorary gestures. This may as well have been the Inauguration Day Parade. That would be the equivalent. They were ready for Jesus to make his move. But again, he has something else in mind. Now, we could easily fill the rest of our time going over some more prophecies, but hopefully you get the idea by now. There will be you know, scores and scores of them that you can uh, take a look at. But all of Jesus' actions and most of his words stated the fact that he was God's newly appointed king. Yet he never took up that earthly throne, even though he could have. Just another opportunity that he had, you know, in John 6, right after he miraculously feeds the 5,000 there in John's gospel, the people say, surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. But when Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Yeah, he's king, but he's not that kind of king. He was never going to be an earthly king, and he was never going to be political, at least in any obvious way. In fact, Jesus was in the habit of drawing people's attention away from earthly politics 
And he actually even made jabs at the rulers and politics and governments uh, of the day. For example, uh, in this part of the world at that time of history, say if you wanted to compliment somebody about you know, his reputation or his greatness or his significance, you could call him a lion, and that would communicate you know, just that, uh, that, um, that admiration on his part. But on the other hand, say if you wanted to call someone a phony or a liar or an imposter, you would call them a fox. Today we might call somebody a weasel if we wanted to uh, throw that title their way. Listen to this. From Luke 13, at that time, some Pharisees said to him, get away from here if you want to live. Herod Antipas wants to kill you. Jesus replied, go tell that fox that I will keep on casting out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And the third day, I will accomplish my purpose. Sounds like he doesn't have a whole lot of value, at least for that particular politician. He says, don't pay attention to that. I'm doing something so much more grand and purposeful and meaningful that you guys can't understand yet. Another time you might remember Jesus saying that foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He says that a number of times in uh, the Gospels. We know what that that fox line is about, but uh, the symbol of Rome was an eagle, a bird. You know, birds have nests, you know, the Son of Man doesn't have any place. Saying this and other things like it was a way for Jesus to minimize earthly politics and say his kingdom is a whole lot different than what people are used to. This king doesn't have a palace or a castle or a white house. Now, this world that Jesus was born into was full of corrupt and cutthroat politics. And every single group of people he dealt with, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, everybody, they all had political agendas. And Jesus, he did not align himself with any of them. One of the great themes of the message that Jesus brings is saying that the true enemy out there isn't Rome. It's not any government. It's not any real leader or ruler. Uh, Jesus says the true enemy out there is sin. The true enemy is Satan. Yeah, Jesus wasn't preaching or practicing the kind of kingdom that the people were hoping for. And his kingdom, it wasn't one of politics, even though, again, he used political language. The kingdom of God that Jesus proclaims goes way beyond earthly politics and governments. His kingdom requires so much of us that our allegiance to every other group or idea should look like a speck of dust in comparison. Just hours before he's crucified, Jesus says this. He says, My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate said, So you are a king. And Jesus responded, you say I'm a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that, is, that what I say is true. Here are some truths for us. If we are followers of Jesus, then he needs to be the only one who sits over the throne of our lives. There's only room for one throne. We can only serve one Lord, one master. It's true Jesus does not align himself with a political party. And yes, I would say that we should be grateful that we have the government that we do. Even though all governments are flawed, arguably we have one of the better ones that the world uh, has today. And those leaders that we have, they're there because God has placed them there. And they do have a role to play in our lives. But Jesus does not belong to Republicans, and Jesus does not belong to Democrats. And while Jesus would have us respect and obey authorities over us, he would also have us know that human rulers are flawed and marred by sin just like we are. Jesus would have us bring the kingdom into our lives, our relationships, and also kind of live it out. 
One thing easily we can do and we're commanded to elsewhere in Scripture is praying for those rulers and authorities. I wonder how many of us are really, really good at that. You know, sometimes leaders make the immoral choice that dishonors God, and that's when we get to bring righteousness and truth into the world. And sometimes leaders make decisions that hurt the marginalized or take advantage of the weak and voiceless. And that's when we get to enter and bring grace and mercy and even justice to certain situations. We're super excited. I'm super excited about a couple of opportunities we have coming up here next month where we get to help out, just, you know, hands and feet. Uh, help out some people who maybe know what it feels like to be cast aside, forgotten, or to, just that life has been a little harder on than most people. One thing Roger mentioned on the front end of the hour is we're hoping to have 20 guys go out to Camp Jabez here in two or three weeks on May 5th to help them get ready for their summer camps. Uh, Camp Jabez that's uh, associated with the gospel mission, which we've been associated with as a church for a long, long time, is kind of their deal, and they're kind of getting geared up for summer. And just uh, so you know their mission, Camp Jabez, they're all about being a Christ-centered ministry, bringing eternal hope and change to the lives of children, youth, and families through the use of horses and outdoor recreation in a loving, safe atmosphere. I know many of the kids that go to uh, this camp out here, they come directly from the inner city that just don't get opportunities like we might here in Springboro. So if you're hearing that and you're like, hey, you can bolt, you can push a wheelbarrow, you can cut branches, we'd love to have you help out on that Saturday. An even bigger thing that we're excited for, we've been gearing up for a number of months, is our Help Build Hope event on May 11th and 12th. And we're needing a handful of people on that Friday evening, but mainly Saturday, hoping to have at least 200 people do a two-home build right out here in our parking lot. We know one house is going to be shipped up just north of Columbus, but the other one is going right next door in Preble County. And the really cool thing about that house going out there is the family that's going to be receiving that house is going to come and just kind of hang out with us that Saturday morning. Uh, we're partnering with Crossroads Missions on this, and they partner in turn with Habitat for Humanity. And the Humanity people, they emailed me uh, this, and I wanted to share it with all of you. It says, those homeowners-to-be, they're going to be coming out to say hi and meet the amazing people to build their house. That's you guys. You're the amazing people. They won't be able to do any work. The mother just had surgery on her neck, and the daughter is three and confined to a wheelchair. Dad would come out, but he works Monday through Saturday. But I know they would like to meet the people helping to make their little girl's life a little bit better. I don't know if Crossroads has shared their story with you, but Lexi, their three-year-old, was born with cerebral palsy, and Rob and Krista adopted her. They live in a single-wide trailer right now, and there isn't room for Lexi's wheelchair to get around. There's no room for a handicapped accessible shower, and the frame of the house cannot support any equipment that would install to, they would install to accommodate her. But this house will open a ton of opportunities for Lexi to move and grow with ample space for physical therapy. I'm very excited to see this family in this home. And I'm very excited to see this too. It's just going to be great having the family out. So, you know, after reading that, we're a whole lot more excited just being able to put a, you know, some faces to the people we're going to be helping out. So I'm eager to have as many hands on deck as possible for that event and just to bring some of this kingdom, you know, God's kingdom to their, to their household. We hope that you can be there as well. Uh, for right now, uh, we're going to start uh, prepping for, we're going to go into a time of communion. So if you're on that team, that can be your cue. Years ago, growing up, I was taught that the gospel or good news was that uh, my sins are forgiven if I believed in Jesus. And that much is true. It was only until much later that I realized that the meaning of the gospel is so, so much more than just your sins are forgiven. 
Whenever a new king was crowned, the gospel or the good news was the grand announcement that the king had officially taken the throne and that a new kingdom was in power. So in the simplest of terms, the gospel, the good news is King Jesus is on the throne. And after that announcement, there would be this grand banquet celebrating, which is exactly what Jesus did himself on the night he was handed over to be crucified. With his disciples there, he said, hey, this bread is my body and this wine represents my blood. And we have this practice today. And by taking them ourselves, the bread and the juice, by taking these ourselves, we are claiming allegiance and loyalty to King Jesus and his kingdom above all else. So I'm going to pray for us and we'll have this kingdom celebration together. Pray with me. Father, something we need help with is uh, being able to see beyond the earthly, beyond the concrete, beyond the visible, and look into the spiritual realm, the invisible, and just realize that your son Jesus is on the throne and no one can take him out of that. So help us uh, be reminded of our allegiance to Jesus and that we can celebrate that uh, it is his kingdom that we are a part of, that we are citizens of heaven first and foremost before any allegiance or loyalty here on earth. Help us treat the time as holy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Southwest Church Teaching Ministries. We are a community of people committed to following Jesus and making disciples. Please join us for one of our three weekly gatherings, Saturdays at 5.30 p.m., Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11.15 a.m.